0: 2 Peter chapter 1 this evening, we continue our series entitled, Add the Path to Godly Living. Peter's giving us seven graces of the Christian life that we are to add on top of our faith. And these seven graces ought to be something that we concern ourselves with daily. And once we do this, we're on the pathway to living a godly life. And so, verse number 1 of 2 Peter, chapter number 1, the Bible says, Simon Peter is servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith. And I like that part. It sticks out to me. It speaks to my heart. Because we have obtained like precious faith, just like Peter had and just like Paul had. They certainly had a walk with God that I envy, but the faith that they believed in is the exact same faith that I have. It's the same Christ, it's the same power, it's the same Holy Spirit that indwells me, that indwelled them. And that's an encouragement to me. They were great Christians, but there is nothing keeping me from being a great Christian, except me. (laughs) And so that's a blessing, that we have the same kind of faith that they had. We've obtained light, precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. "...through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness." Now, when His divine power gets involved in something, it's the power that says, "...with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible." We have His power, we can do anything. The Bible says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, but we need His strength. Because the verse says, which strengtheneth me. And the Bible now is telling us that according to His divine power, with God nothing is impossible. And that's the power that's equipping us to live a godly life. Is given to us at the moment of salvation. That's where it says, Behold, all things, old things are passed away, all things are become new. Our old man is now no longer the boss, but our new man, a new life given to us to live a godly life, a life that would represent. Our relationship with Christ, that's the the life that we're talking about here. The life that God has given us according to His divine nature. Now verse number 5, we pick up our passage that we've studied the last uh, 3 or 4 weeks. And then we'll go in verse 6 and study this week. And beside this, giving all diligence, that means make haste. Focus on this. Work towards this. You should in all earnestness do this. Giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue. And to your virtue knowledge. And to knowledge temperance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the time that we have tonight. I pray that you would bless in the few moments that we do have together. And Lord, may this message be be a help to someone... May it be challenging to someone else. May it be an encouragement. May it bring conviction. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit can do all sorts of different things with the Word of God when it is preached. Lord, I just pray that you would direct me in the way that you would have me go so that I would not hinder the Holy Spirit's work tonight in our service. I pray, Lord, that you'd fill me with your Spirit. Guide me, I ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now we said... Peter is talking to saved people. The reason we know that is because he says, to those that have obtained like precious faith. We don't have faith unless we know Christ. Our faith is in Christ. On uh, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Our faith is in Jesus. So he's talking to saved people. And so he says, add to your faith. That was the first study that we looked at. The foundation of faith. If you don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, there is no reason for you to pay attention to anything else I'm going to say. Because you must be saved to think like a saved person. You must be saved to live like a saved person. That's just the way it is. At least to live like a saved person with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we must be very cautious not to just assume everybody's saved. I even believe in this church. We ought to be very cautious not to believe that somebody that's gone to church for 30 plus years automatically gets saved. It's not a customer loyalty type of program. Just because you've been saved for a lot of years, that does not matter when it comes to standing before God. The only thing that matters when you stand before God will not be the works that you did here on the earth will not be the things that you accumulated here on the earth. It will not be the relationships you had or the people that you saw saved. All that will matter at the, uh, the great white throne of judgment in this particular case is if your faith is in Christ. And if your faith's not in Christ, you're going to be standing at the wrong judgment. So be sure, uh, in fact Peter says it like this, Brethren, <laughs> uh, make, sh- make sure of your calling and election. You've got to make sure that you're saved. Make sure that you know that. So the foundation is on our faith. And here's what I liked about that study. Our faith does not have to be feeble. Now, I'll say this. A lot of ours is. But it does not have to be. You see, Jesus talked about mountain-moving type of faith. And sometimes we take that as if it's just a picture of what our faith can do. But I think that you can take Jesus literal. There are mountains in the Christian life that must be climbed. And Jesus says, if you have the faith, you can just move them out of your way. Why do we have such a feeble faith? Because the faith that Jesus spoke about was mountain-moving, water-walking, demon-drowning type of faith. We can have that faith. The same faith that was available for Peter and Paul is the same faith that we can have. But a lack of faith in our life is directly in correlation to the presence of doubt in our life. We talked about this. There's a lot of Christian teachers, well-meaning certainly, that want you to think that doubt uh, can exist in the life of faith. But when you study scripture, you find that the apostles were actually limited in their power when doubt was present. So faith is exactly the absence of doubt in your life. It is knowing that God can answer any prayer you have. It is knowing that God can accomplish anything that you need Him to. That is faith. So make sure we're not doubting. Make sure we have faith in God. And we said this. Faith is the foundation of every great Christian victory. Let me say that again. Faith is the foundation of every great victory. Don't mistake what I'm saying. A Christian cannot have a great victory that glorifies God unless faith is right in the middle of it. You say, well, what about, what about those people that, you know, can, can slay giants? David didn't slay any giants without faith. Elijah didn't call down fire from heaven without faith. Noah didn't even get on that boat without faith, although it seemed like the great option at the time. <laughs> there was a lot of years of preparation and building that boat that led up in faith. Everything we do that pleases God must be in faith. You know what the Bible says, it is impossible to please God without faith. So we must have a foundation of faith. How's your faith? Is it strong? I know this, that the Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So so we must have the word of God daily in our lives if we're going to have any type of faith. How is your faith? Number one, we looked at the, uh, the foundation of faith. Number two, we looked at the value of virtue. The value of virtue. And what that was so important for us to know is now that we have this divine nature in God... We ought to see that the life that we used to live was not worth living. Friend, if you got saved off of a bar stool, you've got to understand that the church pew is a whole lot better place than the bar stool. And if you have Christ living in your life, you'll recognize that truth. And you'll know that the nights where you can't remember are not nearly as good as the days when you remember God working in your life. We have that divine nature. And so, value of virtue, virtue was defined as moral excellence. You see, God is morally excellent in every area you can imagine. He is morally excellent in honesty. He is more morally excellent, excellent in integrity and purity. He is morally excellent in every area of life. And our goal as Christians is that we would begin to look like Him. The value of virtue. Number three, last week we studied this, the need for knowledge, the need for knowledge. Now we talked about how odd it seems that knowledge would follow virtue because one would assume that it would be necessary for knowledge to exist before virtue could exist. In other words, I've got to know what's wrong to drink alcohol before I know not to drink alcohol and that would be the normal nature of things. But we talked about how more morality is answers a lot of questions for us. You see, I don't need the Word of God to tell me it's wrong to steal from Brother John. I mean, he doesn't have much, but it's wrong if he did have something. And I don't need the book of the law to tell me that that's wrong. That's been written on our hearts. In fact, you study Romans chapter 1. The law of God has been written on our hearts, so certain things... Have been wrong. You ever thought about this? Cain and Abel didn't know it was wrong. Cain didn't know it was wrong to kill Abel. The Mosaic law hadn't come yet. Uh, The Ten Commandments certainly wasn't there. God hadn't given any other rules, to my knowledge, other than. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now he said, you can't go back to Eden. I don't think that was much of a temptation with an angel with a flaming sword. But, but just so I'm saying, there weren't many rules made yet. And yet Cain understood it was wrong to murder his brother. Why? Well, because morality answers a lot of questions that Christians struggle with. It's just good to be good. And even before I have to go on these long lectures with my children, most of the time they know when they did wrong. So knowledge doesn't always have to precede a virtue, but the things that morality does not tell us about, knowledge is necessary. As we begin to learn more about God, as we begin to learn about His character... You see, God doesn't always do good because uh, uh, it's wrestling Him to do it. Uh, Obviously, God's character kind of makes Him do uh, holy things and righteous things. But what we misunderstand is, we should just do good when given the opportunity. And that's where knowledge comes in necessary. When given the opportunity to act like God, we should. Knowledge is necessary. This is accomplished as we work as hard as we can... And let God do all that He can in our lives. We said this, Philippians chapter 2, I'll revisit this because it's so important. Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says this, it's the definitive passage on this. The relationship between us working and God working in our lives. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what's the next words there? It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're doing that. You're doing that. Work out your own salvation. It is your responsibility to live out the Christian life. But then it says in verse number 13, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So God not only gives you the capability of performing His will, He also gives you the desire to do His will. So God and you are working at this Christian life thing. And your responsibility is to want to live the Christian life. Your responsibility is to live the Christian life. But God gives the capability. You understand? Without God, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Peter, uh, uh, Paul said, I know that in me... Uh, dwelleth no good thing that is in my flesh. And then he goes on to say, for to will is present with me, but how to do the things that I would, I know not. He says, I don't even know how to do it unless God is working with me. So, the foundation of faith, the value of virtue, the need for knowledge, and now this week we look at the treasure of temperance. Now, don't think that just because it's buried in the middle of some list in the Bible, this is not incredibly important. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Every word of God was given to you for a purpose. And God here, through the Apostle Peter, says, we should seek to add temperance to our lives. Now, most of us don't know how to define temperance, to be honest with you. Most of us don't even know what it is. It's a word that we're not familiar with, that we don't often use. But temperance is this: self-control. The virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual appetites. Now, you may already be thinking, oh, I'm I control myself quite well. I mean, I want to strangle my children on many occasions, and I have yet to do it. So it's kind of like when my wife leaves me with the kids, and she says, Hey, can you watch the kids? I'm going to run out and get my nails done or whatever. And I say, Sure, sure, sure. I'm not worried if the house gets messy. I'm not worried if the kids get fed. I'm not worried if uh, they cry. I'm not worried about any of that. My only goal is that they survive, okay? And if we can make it with all three of them still at least barely breathing the, at, uh, when she arrives home, mom will fix the problem. We, we, we do have self-control in certain areas, but I would say that if we really evaluated our life, no, 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 let me say it like this, better said like this. If we really let the Holy Spirit evaluate our life, when we evaluate ourselves, we grade on a curve, don't we? We compare ourselves with uh, others and the Bible says that is not wise. We ought to be like the psalmist, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. If we allow the Holy Spirit to look at our life tonight, we would all agree that in some areas we're doing okay, but there are other areas we're failing miserably. This is a tough lesson. It really is. Because I don't think there's a person in this room that does not struggle with self-control in some areas of their life. Some of the ones that come to mind right away are number one is anger. Well, sometimes, given the right situation, maybe I'm a little sleepy. Maybe you know I haven't eaten well. And and by the way, your physical directly affects your spiritual. And when you don't get rest, and when you aren't eating well, and, and I mean when McDonald's is the you know mainstay in your diet you got to be on the lookout, because when you aren't feeling well, oftentimes you don't act well spiritually. And given the right set of circumstances, I've been known to fly off the handle. I'm not doing well in this area, and maybe you aren't as well. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 19, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Aren't you so glad that God is slow to anger? The Bible calls him patient and long-suffering, long-suffering towards us. I need all of that. But so do those around us. You know, everybody makes mistakes, our wives included. Wives, your husband makes, makes mistakes all the time. I told my wife, before we ever got married, while we are still dating, I said, Now understand this, guys are dumb, and I am not the exception to the rule. We must understand that our children will misbehave and our employer won't treat us fairly and all these things will take place. But self-control is not dictated to us by those around us. We must understand that it's biblical to be slow to wrath. And it makes us resemble God when we are slow to wrath. So we must be temperate in anger. We must be temperate in our speech. We must be temperate in our speech. But we ought to just, we ought to be very careful of how we talk, especially in those moments when, like, we react, because we can kind of choke down the words, or we can choke down the ways that we say things in easy times, but when given the right set of circumstances, you know, when the... When the hammer hits the thumb, <laughs> or or that person cuts us off in traffic, even though we just cut them off five miles down, you know, before on the road. But but given the right set of circumstances, we all are prone to lash out. We got to be careful what we say. Right now, I'm in the process of teaching my daughters how to have clean speech, and and they found they used to find it just incredibly humorous to say the word poopy all the time, it was the punchline to every joke, knock, knock, who's there, poopy, (laughs) and it just, I was like, let me teach you how to say a joke, that's that's awful, and and it just for a week, and it just got too much, and I said, girls, y'all are beautiful, let's have a clean speech, let's just, let's just have a clean speech. And I've really, it's convicted me, it's challenged me, that I ought not say words that I don't want my daughters saying. We must have a clean speech. Let your speech be always seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. We ought to be careful and temperate in our speech. We ought to be temperate in our critical spirit. Boy, I struggle with this one, y'all. I am cynical because of my father, Okay? I'm just telling you, I got his good looks, but I also got his cynicism. And and I'm not saying that to, to criticize him. I'm just saying, when put in a situation, I'm able to see the error a lot easier than I am to see the positive in things. You know, if I go to a conference, I'm a lot more able to criticize the singing than I am to compliment the preaching. That's just the way I am. And I have to guard against this. I told the teenager when we were in New Mexico, before we ever got started, I said, okay, look, we're not going to criticize anything. We're not going to complain about anything. God's not going to bless the trip if we do that. And so we get there and our rooms were like 85 degrees and... It was kind of rough, you know, and it's nighttime. I lay my mattress on the floor. I lay down on the mattress and a mouse runs out from my mattress. I mean, it's a real blessing, amen. I don't know what we expected when we went to the reservation. I just thought they had Hilton's on every corner. I don't know, but but we're there. And I'm telling you, I told the teenagers, like, you guys do not criticize. You do not complain. And I made this little deal where we... We kept each other accountable and we said, shame, shame, when somebody would complain. We said, shame, shame. I mean, that's what we did. And I'll never forget laying in my bed and I had a text message typed up on my phone to the only person that I would ever complain to, my father. And I literally said, this is going to be a rough trip. And before I ever hit the sin button, the Holy Spirit com- convicted me that I'm telling the teenagers not to complain, and yet I'm about to do it to our pastor, to our preacher. We must be careful not to just see the bad in everything. We must watch our critical spirit, especially to those that are around us. James chapter 4 says, Speak not evil of one another, brethren, He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. We must be careful. This VBS coming up, it's our first one to run. If you see something that doesn't run well, how about you take your suggestion and put it in the suggestion box. It's directly right next to the toilet. And by right next, I mean right in the middle of, okay? Okay. I'm not saying we can't improve on things. I'm just saying let's be positive. Let's see the cup half full instead of half empty. And so we must be careful and temperate with our critical spirit. Number four, we must be temperate in times of temptation. Temptation. I think all of us would like to have better self-control in those moments where we're in the arena of temptation. Well, I want to be the Joseph, don't you? I don't want to be David. I want to be Joseph who has the opportunity and chooses to reject the opportunity and yet flee the devil and pursue after God. That's what I want. I don't want to be David who, by the way, didn't have as much opportunity as Joseph and yet somehow has to get her, bring her to his palace, then arrange for Uriah to come and he's trying to hide his sin. You see, when we get in the middle of sin, we'll go out we'll jump every hurdle to, to get to sin and yet we can just flee the devil all, all we want. It's just, it seems like it's so much easier to, to, to fall into sin, but that's not the case in David's case. He went out of his way to get involved in sin. And Joseph, man, it was just so simple for him, right? Well, I'll just, I'll just leave. <laughs> Elvis has left the building, y'all. You can have my coat. I'm gone. I want to be Joseph. I don't want to be David. The Bible says in James chapter 1, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And I want to be that man that when I'm tried, I I just just am temperate and I have self-control in those moments. Number five, we must be temperate in our covetousness. I'm probably the only one in here that is such a sinner that I deal with coveting things that are not mine. I deal with people that, you know, uh, I have buddies. I like hunting. And I have buddies that have the nicest guns. They drive the nicest trucks. They go on the biggest trips. And they always invite me to go. And you know what I always have to tell them? (laughs) I'm a preacher, guys. I don't have the money you guys have. I, I can't afford that. I can't do that. I can't. And sometimes my spirit just, you know, I want those things. I want to be a man that's temperate. And I need to look at Scripture and understand that a man's life does not consist of the things that he has. And so the Bible says in Luke chapter 12, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Lord God, give me the strength to be temperate when it comes to these areas. Now, by the way, these are only a few ways that we need temperance. I don't know what you struggle with. But we all need self-control. We all need it. So how do we find it? Number one, we'll look at this evening, the instructor of temperance. Now this is great. Okay. I know we've gone through a long list of some things, but this is awesome. I want y'all to take your Bible and I want you to look at the top right hand corner of the page that you're on. Now above the scripture Above all the words, there should be a title of the book up there. I want you all to all read that title with me. What's the name of the book right there in the top right-hand corner of your page? 2 Peter. Who wrote wrote 2 Peter? Peter. And Peter is teaching us to have self-control. Think of the irony. Think how crazy that is. Now, if it's the Apostle Paul, makes sense. Maybe it's John. <laughs> makes sense. Peter! I mean, is that not fantastic? That Peter is the one that's telling us to, every once in a while, you're just going to have to have self-control. Now, Peter, what about the Mount of Transfiguration? You remember that? Hey, Peter, remember when the Lord told you that you would deny him? How about that moment? Where was your self-control then? Hey, Peter, how about when you stepped out of the boat? By the way, he was the only one that had the faith to step out of the boat. But how about when you stepped out of the boat and you didn't have enough self-control to keep your eyes on Jesus? Hey, Peter, what about all of these times? Where was your self-control at there, Peter? Why weren't you temperate in those moments? I believe that if you read through Scripture, you find that Peter is just a testament to God's work of grace in someone's life. The guy that we read about in the Gospels is not the same guy we see in the book of Acts. We find a man who's bold. We find a man who loves God. We find a man throughout Scripture who's encouraging these churches and these saints. We find a different man than the book of of uh, uh, or the gospels aren't you glad that god changes people Amen. now oftentimes we don't give them the opportunity to change oftentimes we our perception of a person stays at the moment of salvation we don't ever give them the opportunity to be sanctified and develop in grace but 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 aren't you thankful that you are not the same individual that you were when you got saved tonight? Aren't you glad that God's work of grace has been moving and changing you? Aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that when God saved you, he put you on the potter's wheel and he began to spin that wheel and his hands began to form you and knock off the rough edges that did not belong. Aren't you thankful tonight that you're a token of God's grace? Man, that's good stuff. It's ironic that Peter would be the instructor of temperance, but it's not inconvenient because he's come a long way. Say, so how do you know that, Brother Andrew? On the screens you'll see the passage from Galatians chapter 2. Now, this is a unique passage of Scripture because this is where Peter and Paul confront Well, Paul confronts Peter. And he is not happy with something that Peter has done. We'll read the passage together, but I want you to notice this is too... Pillars in the New Testament church. You see, uh, Jesus is the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. But these guys were, were huge. I mean, these are the two biggest evangelists of the day, if you will. I mean, these are the big name preachers. And Paul confronts Peter. The Bible says in Galatians chapter two, by the way, this is Paul writing. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face. Because he was to be blamed. He's saying because he had fault. Because he had done something wrong. Verse number 12, For before that certain came from James. James was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. So maybe they sent a little party uh, to Antioch. I'm not entirely sure. But I know that James' church, being in Jerusalem, would have been primarily made up of Jewish men and women. And so this group that came from Jerusalem, this group that came from the first Baptist church in Jerusalem, Pastor James, they would have been Jewish. Well, before those people came, Peter did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision, meaning he was afraid of what the Jewish people that had come from James's church might say if he was found eating with the Gentile. And the other Jews dis- dissembled likewise with him. In other words, they all followed Peter's lead. Oh, I would have done that too. I mean, Peter's the big dog. I mean, he's writing scripture. He's, you know, he's got revelation from Christ. Surely we got to follow him. The Bible says, In so much that Barnabas... You know who Barnabas is? He's the son of consolation. He's an encourager. He's the guy that ought to be eating with people, but yet he follows Peter's lead, and he was also carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly, according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter, Before them all, if thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews do, uh, as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Now, you may not understand what he's saying there, but he is flat calling Peter a hypocrite. He is saying, Peter, how come you're living one way and telling others to live another? Let me just put it like this How would you feel? If someone came to you in the middle of your group of friends and said, hey, I've got a bone to pick with you. Huh. You say you're living according to the gospel. You say you're, you know, a church goer. You, you say you love Jesus. I'm just telling you right now, what you're saying ain't matching with what you're doing. Right. We probably wouldn't sit with them at the next roundup meal, would we? <laughs> it probably wouldn't go over so well the Apostle Paul confronts Peter. And by the way, Peter was wrong. And Peter deserved to be confronted. I think that probably in the New Testament Baptist Church, even today's Baptist Church, we would be a lot better if when we saw people doing things that were hypocritical, we would confront them in a spirit of love and grace. And we say, this isn't right. Except we're too embarrassed or we don't want them to think that we're in their business. No, let's encourage, edify one another to walk after Christ. That's literally the reason we come to church. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And so much the the more as you see the day approaching. Why? So that we can encourage one another and help each other be more godly. uh, Paul does this in Peter's life. You say, how do you know that Peter was temperate? Did you know that Peter wrote books of the Bible? He could have used them as like his rebuttal. This is the only time in Scripture we hear about this. If I had been Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, Paul's a jerk. <laughs> Peter, uh, an apostle, called to serve the Lord Jesus and uh, can't really stand Paul. ha, <laughs> ha. Good preacher, not much on conversations. But we never find that. And, and then he would have probably been like, you know, if it was me. Even if I acknowledged that I was wrong, like Peter probably did, I would have probably thought to myself in the back of my mind, he could have chosen a better time to do it. I mean, he, he approached me right in front of everybody. Look, before them all. Isn't that what we want? We want people to to encourage us to live godly the way that we want them to, right? We we don't want them to do it like before everybody. Don't approach us in the middle of choir practice and tell me I'm not living like God, you know. But, But that's what happened. If nothing else, Peter could have probably said something like, Yeah, his discretion isn't the best. But we never hear of it again. You know what that is? temperance having the opportunity to lash back and not self control you know what even if Peter I believe Peter had grown leaps and bounds in this area of temperance and self control but even if he hadn't by the way the preacher does not need to be an expert on a matter to preach on a matter Because I'm telling you right now, if preachers had to be experts on matters to preach on matters, we would have preachers that were completely godly, and the rest of the congregation, they're not held to any of the same standards. You see, if, if I had to be an expert in every area of life, in the Christian life, I probably couldn't preach to you on prayer. Guess why? Because I'm still trying to have a really effective prayer life. I still try and I still work at it. I still want God to answer prayers. But I'm by no means uh, uh, somebody whose heart will be buried in Africa because I prayed so hard. That's not me. I want to be a better prayer. And I'm just like you, I would assume in that area. But every time I ever hear a message on prayer, guess what happens? I get convicted. I'm not an expert on that. I'm not an expert on soul winning. Now I want to be a good soul winner. I try to be a good soul winner. I know verses. I try to confront people with their need for the gospel. But I don't think that I'm some Adoniram Judson when it comes to soul winning. I don't think that I'm C.H. Spurgeon who led somebody to the Lord for every week for his entire life. And that's not me. I want to be a better soul winner. But aren't you thankful that you do not have to be an expert in the Christian life to be growing in the Christian life? By the way, not even Gene Cordell Wolfenbarger has arrived as a Christian. And he might be a little bit further down the road, or he might be a few more trips around the barn, but he has not arrived. That doesn't happen until glorification. We've all been justified. We're all being sanctified. And one day we will all be glorified. But we're not there yet. We're all somewhere on the road. So yeah, we ought to all admit wholeheartedly there's at least one area that I need better self-control in. I need to be temperate, But don't let that discourage you because all of us are there. In one area or a (laughs) hundred, we're all there. Peter was there. Guess what? So was Paul. By the way, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I am the least of the apostles. He says that I am not meet to be called an apostle. He says in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 8, Unto me who am less than least of all the saints. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Say amen right there. Amen. And then he says, Of whom I am chief. According to the apostle Paul, he was not qualified to write scripture. (laughs) He was like the worst sinner of us all. But aren't you thankful that he's still working on me? To make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars. The sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be. He's still working on me. And just find it unique that we have the instructor of temperance is Peter. Number two, I want you to see this. There are images of temperance in Scripture. Now, our passage doesn't say much about temperance. It only says that we are to add temperance. But we must understand what temperance is, what it looks like, before we can really understand why it's advantageous for us to have it. So, we find two passages of Scripture that are completely appropriate in the book of Proverbs. The first picture is this If we have temperance, we become a conqueror. Now, I want you to see Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit, he that is temperate. You see, because he has self control, he can rule his spirit. He that ruleth his spirit, then he that taketh a city. Now you know in Bible times they would come up to cities, they would uh, uh, fight against cities for the purpose of capturing those cities, they would overtake those cities, they would besiege those cities. It's what happened to Daniel and his compatriots there. Babylon came and besieged Jerusalem. And so we know that they would come against cities and they would overtake them. And the Bible says if we will be able to rule our spirit... If we can have temperance or self-control, we become a conqueror better than he that taketh a city. Alexander the Great, one of the most famous warriors in all of history. He was tutored at the age of 16 by a man you may have heard of him. His name was Aristotle. In 15 years of conquest, Alexander the Great never lost a single battle. Simultaneously, Alexander the Great was king of Macedonia, Pharaoh of Egypt, king of Persia, and king of Asia. He conquered a vast majority of the known world at the time. Alexander the Great is known as one of the best, most uh, uh, accomplished warriors in all of history. And history has ascribed to him this name, the Great. The Great. Because no other warrior in history has the accomplishments that he has. Did you know his battle strategies are still studied today? The great. You know what the Bible says? If you can have temperance, you'll be a great warrior. You will be able to conquest, you will be able to overtake cities. You know what I think that means? You will be able to accomplish things in the Christian life. Things that you want to see accomplished, you want to be a great prayer, you have self-control, you have discipline, you have temperance, you can become a great prayer. Through the Holy Spirit's help, by the way, because it is us that is supposed to work out our uh, salvation with fear and trembling, but it is Him that worketh in us to will and to do His good pleasure. And so, as we desire it, God does it, and we know that we, if we have temperance, we become one that is able to overtake cities. The Bible says in the book of James, chapter number 3, it speaks of our tongue. And certainly I think we can all agree we all need help with tongues. At least James says that about us. It says in verse number 5, even so the tongue is a little member, it's just a small thing. He compares it to the bridle in the horse's mouth or the rudder on the bottom of a ship. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature. And it is set on the fire of hell for every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and out of all things of the sea is tamed. In other words, he says, we've got zoos down the road. They've got rhinoceroses. They've got hippos. They have lions. They have cheetahs. One time I was preaching about the devil being a devourer and I said, I've seen the National Geographic Channel and I've seen what lions do to the gazelles and the gazebos. <laughs> and my very first sermon, ever preached it. Luke chapter 8, the maniac of Gadara. I've seen what the devil can do to gazelles and gazebos. I may not have been an expert on zoology at that point in my life, but James is saying all kinds of creatures... You go to the aquarium tonight, you can see a great white shark. All kinds of creatures have been tamed by mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is unruly evil, full of deadly poison. And yet I believe that the Bible tells us if we will be temperate, if through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life we can become temperate in areas we can overcome even the greatest of cities, even the greatest of battles in our life, for we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That's why James says in verse number two, "If any man offend, not in word and deed, the same man is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body." You see, it is possible. Huh? It's kind of one of them deals where the camel's going to have to pass through an eye of a needle, but that's where God says with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And so we become conquerors if we have temperance. Here's the sad thing, though. Number two, we become conquerable if we do not. Now, you can have the power of God working in your life, and and you can see... Temperance begin to develop in some areas. You can have self-control. In other words, you can uh, uh, wake up tomorrow and say you're not very good at reading your Bible on a consistent schedule. You can, through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and a whole lot of self-discipline on your part, you can accomplish temperance. You can be self-disciplined. You can have self-control in this matter. And you become a conqueror in this area. But if you choose not to, here's the result you become so incredibly vulnerable. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit. See, this is the opposite of what Proverbs chapter 16 verse 32 told us. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You see, both involve cities. And the Bible tells us that if you have temperance, you can become a conqueror of those cities. You become greater than the man that can walk in and conquer a city on his own. But if you fail to have temperance, if you fail to add that to your faith, here's what happens. You become prey to anything. You know, you can look through Scripture. You can find great men of God that fail. David. Abraham, even. You can find men who... You look up to Moses, and we see this over and over again in Scripture. And what's sad is we see it even today. You see some of the greatest, best preachers fall. You you see men that you've heard sermons from that just changed your life, and you see men that have just led countless souls to the Lord Jesus. You've seen those men fall. How does that happen? A lack of temperance, a lack of self control. And what happens is they become like a city whose walls are broken down. They're without protection. The walls of Jericho, obviously, kind of, uh, those are the most famous walls in the Bible. What you see, uh, I did this uh, Sunday school lesson for the teenagers years ago. But as I was studying and you look at the archaeological ruins of Jericho, you find that it was not just one wall you find that it was not one giant wall, it was actually two. And you can actually see, because of the archaeological findings, that the first wall was much more like a giant retaining wall. And that wall was approximately 12 feet. They don't know exactly, but, but based upon measurements, based upon what the Bible says, they, they think that wall was about 12 feet. Now that's a pretty tall wall. But behind it, it had land, and it, had, uh, it was a retaining wall. And that's why you hear the chariots can race around the wall. Well, it's because they were uh, in, on the other side of the wall. There was land there, and the wall itself was giant. But, but you had this huge retaining wall. And then you can see there you had a flat surface, and that's where Rahab would have lived on that first wall. That's where most citizens would have lived on that first wall. But on the second wall, it was about another 10 feet, so the wall was somewhere between 22 to 25 feet, they estimate. It's all guesstimates, but, but that's where uh, archeologi- archaeologists have found this, and they think that's about accurate. So you have first walls about 12 feet, it's a huge retaining wall, a landmass going to the next wall, and you have another... 10 or so feet. So the wall is 22 feet tall. And on the inside of that second wall is where you would have the garrison, the armory. That's where you would have the palace where the king would have stayed. The very important people would have been in that part. More protected, more secure, more isolated from those that might invade the city. And so you have these walls and you, all you have to do is read Joshua and find that the city was pretty in, in, impenetrable. I mean, they were worried about it. They didn't think they could do it. And and so these walls would have been just daunting to anybody that came up to them. And, oh, there's no way we can overtake Jericho. There's no way. Look at these walls. Did you know that in Joshua chapter 6, there are 20 verses assigned to planning and carrying out the battle strategy of defeating the walls? Uh, you say, What's the significance of that? Well, you remember God told them that they were to, you know, assemble the people in a certain order, and the priest would carry the Ark of the Covenant. They would go around the city. The people were not to make a noise. They would go around the city one time uh, for, for, I believe, six days. And then on the seventh day, they would march around the city seven times, and that's uh, 13 times. And, and then on the last day, they would, they would not say any words, they would not do anything. But on the last day, they would blow the trumpets, everybody would shout. And man, these walls would come tumbling down, right? We, we all know this story. And the walls came tumbling. Don't don't lie. Most of your theology comes from bus songs. Get over it. It's okay. But that's what we find. And twenty verses it takes from God telling them how to do it to them actually accomplishing it. You know how many verses it takes to overtake the city? One. In fact, the Bible says this about the walls of Jericho or about them going into the city. The Bible says in Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, oxen, sheep, and ass with the edge of the sword. 20 verses to defeat the walls. That's 25. I don't... 20, 20 verses to defeat the walls... One verse to defeat the people in the city. It's almost like the people in the city didn't even grab a sword. Yeah, yeah, that was the easy part. Once the walls fell, that was the easy part. The man without the wall of temperance in his life is so incredibly vulnerable. You have no self-control. You have no self-discipline. You're vulnerable. And it will only take one verse to defeat you. One verse. You see, when we have temperance, we become conquerors. When we fail to add temperance to our faith, we become conquerable. So here's what happens when we ignore temperance. That's the third point tonight, if you're keeping track. Ignoring temperance. There's another very famous set of walls in the Bible. It's the walls at Jerusalem. Those walls had fallen down. The great uh, priest Ezra, the great normal guy, Nehemiah, they both become very concerned about the walls that have fallen down in Jerusalem. In fact, the Bible tells us in Nehemiah chapter 1 that uh, one of his brethren had come to the palace that was in Shushan for Nehemiah and Nehemiah is interested about those that had returned from captivity that were going back to Jerusalem. And Nehemiah asks for a report about the walls and about how they're doing. And this is what that man had to say to Nehemiah. Verse number three. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. If you know nothing about the book of Nehemiah, let me encourage you. It's a fantastic book in the Old Testament. I would encourage you to study it out and read it. But what happens is these people, the walls are broken down, so everything afflicts them. You say, what do I mean by that? Oh, sure. Enemies that would invade them are obviously a problem. You know what else afflicts them because they have no walls? The wind. The wind. You ever thought about that? You ever been outside when it's real windy? You know what's awesome about when it's real windy? We can go inside. You you can get out of it. With no walls, where are you going to go? Even the simplest of problems become very big problems. They're in great affliction and reproach. This is a real problem. The walls are broken down. You know what else is broken down? The house of God. But Nehemiah returns, Ezra's already there, those people that had gathered. Nehemiah's main concern and first priority is not fixing up the house of the Lord. Jeremiah's first priority is not building an altar for people to pray at. His main priority is not building a pulpit. Although, by the way, they build a pulpit, it's a great study in the Bible. Ezra stands up behind it, reads the Word of God, everybody gets right with God. It's fantastic. But that was not his main concern. You know what he focused on first? Building the wall. Restoring the wall. Why? Because if you don't have a wall, you don't have a city. If you don't have a wall, all you have is property. If you don't have a wall, you have no claim to the city because whoever wants it can have it. You've got to have a wall. There must be something that can protect you. There must be something that can separate you from those that would afflict you. The wall must be set. The man of God that chooses to have no rule over his own spirit is like a man, is like a city who has broken down walls. The first priority of every Christian in this room ought to be to add temperance to our life. To add a little self-control. It's becoming so unpopular in this day and age as our kids sleep in until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But we must add some self-control to ourselves and teach our children how to have self-control. This is just so simple. But the Bible is very, very plain on the matter. We must be temperate in all things. Because here's why the Apostle Paul tells us a little bit about temperance. You know that the Apostle Paul says a lot about um, athletics and he talks about people that are running races. This passage is no different. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that you may obtain. Don't enter the race just to participate. Enter the race to win. If you're going to be in a race, try to win. I'm going to teach my daughter, try to win. And if you have to trip somebody, try to win. So it's biblical. You see, it's biblical. But if you're going to run in the race, you try to obtain the prize. And every man that striveth for the mastery, if you're going to get serious about winning the crown of Jesus Christ, if you're going to get serious about winning the prize that is available for Christians, if you're truly going to try to do it, you must be temperate in all things. You must control yourself, you must have self control. Now they that do it obtain a corruptible crown. He's talking about, uh, you know, you run in the Olympics, you get a medal. That so what? That goes away. Like preacher said this at, this morning, you leave it for the next guy. But we an incorruptible. I therefore so run not as uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection. Look at this lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Paul was worried about becoming one of these great preachers that touched the lives of so many. He was worried about becoming one of those and falling. And undoing all that he had done all those years. Paul says, The result of a man that is temperate in all things is a man that strives for the crown. The result of a man that is temperate in all things is a man that tries to win. But guess what? The result of a man who has no self discipline, who has no self control, who has no temperance, here's the result. You don't know why you're running, and you don't know how to run. He says, I know why I'm running to win the crown, to win the prize. I know why I'm running. And then he says, So run I, run I, not as one that beateth the air. Now, what a, what a funny-looking picture that Paul puts there. I mean, you remember Rocky? You know, You know, he's running down the road, and he's punching at nothing. Have you all seen that? I thought about putting a YouTube clip up here. But I just thought we could all use our imagination. But Sylvester Stallone, he's going down the road. You know, he's got his... Uh, his like gray sweatsuit on. He's got his black toboggan on. You know, he's dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. What whats he punching? No what? I, I got news for you. The Russian's not standing in front of you yet, Rocky. What's he doing? Well, in boxing, it's called shadow boxing. You see, there's a lot of guys. They'll stand in front of a mirror and they'll, and they'll punch and they'll dodge and they'll try to evade. You know what? Anybody that's ever tried shadow boxing has won undefeated. undefeated The result of trying to beat your shadow is this: you never get punched back now you may look like you know what you're doing you know with all your jukes and you got to you know wipe the snot off your nose. I guess you know that's what they do but but they're you can do that all day long and look awesome. You know what changes? When someone in front of you is trying to punch back. That's when you turn into the junior hire. I mean, nobody's in front of me. Yeah, you come on, man. I'll take you out. I'll take you out. Ah, get away, get away, get away. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, so run I... Not as one that beateth the air. Anybody can beat the air. Anybody looks like they know what they're doing when they beat the air. I'm fighting a real adversary. He says, I fight the devil every day. I struggle. I have to fight. This is real. Sometimes I get knocked down. Sometimes I knock him down. But the struggle is real. A lot of Christians are just playing around. They look like they're living the Christian life. They're not. They're not temperate in all things. I'll never forget, last year, a great church member in in this church convinced me and my wife to let my daughter play, I think it's called Starburst Softball, or whatever, uh, some star something softball. And I thought, man, this is a great idea. I, you know, I want my daughters to, if they're not going to be athletic, I want them to at least not be like uber girly, like, you know... If a ball comes their way, I don't want them to curl up in the fetal position. I want them to be able to know what to do with the ball, whether they pick it up and throw it back or they kick it back. So I was like, yeah, this is awesome. I'll let Kalen play. I should have known. Do you know how difficult the rules of baseball are to explain to a three-year-old? How would you explain it? Well, you see, Caitlin, you're going to go up into this little box, this this box that's dr- drawn out. Okay, you got that. You stand in this box, and they're going to put this ball on the tee, and then and then you're going to put the bat on your shoulder. And you're going to swing the bat, and you're going to try hitting the ball. And if you hit the ball, you're going to run. Where do I run? Well, you run to the base. Which one? Oh, well, you run to first. So that's that's the one up. You know, that way, you run to first, okay, do I stop? Well, that if you hit the ball really hard, you, you, think about how awful that is. <laughs> you just run to one, and then so... You cannot imagine how difficult it was explaining the rules of baseball to my daughter. I just went out there and walked her to the base every time. Like, good, good hit, Caitlin, let's run, you know. And then the one little kid, his parents wouldn't come out. And I was like, all right, so we're going to stop laying in the ground and making dust angels. We only do that in the snow, okay. We can't make dust angels. we got to make snow angels. And when we're on the baseball field, we're not doing dust angels, all right. So, so we got to run. It, it was just the worst But it did make my day when one poor little kid, I'm not sure who it was, if it was your kid, sorry, one little kid hit the ball and no matter how many times he did it, he would always run to the ball. Every time, how many games, babe, maybe six games, every time. He had no idea where he was going. He just knew he was going to go get the ball. I mean, everybody's like, get the ball, get the ball. Well, we're not talking to you. You just hit the ball. You go to the, <laughs> get the ball, get the ball. Okay, I'll get the ball. I mean, It was just wonderful. Oh man, it was just fantastic. When I was playing Little League, I'll never forget, uh, one kid got up there and, This may have been me. I can't recall, but I'm not sure. But one kid got up there, hit the ball. He runs to the pitcher's mound, to third base, to second base, to first base, back to home. He had no idea where he was going. It was wonderful. The sad reality is, though, that, that sums up a lot of Christians' lives. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get there. And they certainly don't have the Spirit of God empowering them to get there. We must be temperate in all things. We must add to our faith virtue. We must add to our virtue knowledge. And to our knowledge, temperance or self-control.